You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert. So I wanted to start off today with a story from NPR called A Cautionary Tale for China's Ambitious Chip Makers. And basically what it describes is how China's been pouring billions of dollars into semiconductor chip making with little show for it. So this is just from early on in the story. Hongzhen Semiconductor Manufacturing Company is one of six multi-billion dollar chip projects to fail in the last two years. The rise and fall is a cautionary tale in an industry that is flush with state cash, but still scarce on expertise, and a preview of the expensive and winding road China will have to take towards semiconductor self-sufficiency, now a national security priority. And there's a lot I want to explore here about the wider issues that's wrapped up in this, but let me just ask this question. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't at all. Uh, there's a saying in Silicon Valley, and I always feel sexist when I say it, but it's true is that no matter how much you might want to, you can't get nine women together and have a baby in a month. You can't rush certain things. And the way that semiconductors work is you're always chasing a moving target. So you know, China has had a lot of success in um, mimicking and building out the commodity semiconductor sector. So if you want to build you know, basic memory chips or even low-level processors, uh, that's something that they're, the experience and technical knowledge is already there. But if you want to leapfrog to the most advanced semiconductors, which is something that uh, Intel isn't having even gotten to yet, uh, then you're skipping all of these steps. And each of those steps is an important part in the gestation period of that kind of business. So throwing money at it is just like trying to get nine women together and have a baby in a month. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of... Um, you know, as a writer, you have like a finished product. And when you read somebody's finished product, it looks really easy on the surface. And you could even backwards engineer it, right? You could make an outline of it and say, okay, yeah, I could have done this. I just need to fill in the pieces. But what you don't see is all of the decision making that went into that all the false starts, all the kind of exploration, all of the chapters that were cut out. And indeed, as my journalism teacher used to always stress, like you should know 10 times more than goes into your final article. And so if you're, if, if you're skipping these steps and trying to just, all right, we're going to start innovating when we have not developed the ability just to kind of do what people have been doing for decades in other places, there's a lot that's hidden from you that you don't know that I think makes taking further steps in something like semiconductors if not impossible, like way harder than you might expect. And it focuses you on the wrong place. Like if you sat down and you were committed to writing and just, and you look at a finished draft and you're like, yeah, that I, I should be able to sit down and write that. Uh, but if you were to sit down and be committed to writing a perfect book, you would never get anywhere. 
And so when you focus your attention or your money on the wrong thing, it ends up being counterproductive. And it's not just because you won't be able to do zero to the final step all in one leap, but it's also because you don't know what you're going to discover along the way. Uh, you know, you have a particular uh, story in mind, that's not necessarily a story that you end up with, and you'll never find out the story you're going to end up with unless you work through the whole process of putting the story together. And this is true for you know, creative activities, it's true for building a new business, and it's true for even discovering new ideas. That I mean, that reminds me of a famous story about Intel, in fact, where Years ago, you know, they were creating memory uh, uh, chips, and they were th getting completely outcompeted by the more affordable chips that were being produced. I believe in those days, mostly in Japan. And so Andy Grove and uh, Robert Noyce sat down and said, "Okay, like, what? Do, how are we going to win this business?" And they came to the conclusion that, well, if we were going to get replaced by a CEO from the outside, he'd say, well, you need to get out of memories and focus on uh, process, microprocessors. Like that's really what you're good at. And so there's a certain way in which if, you know, China is saying like, all right, guys, go and produce semiconductor chips. If you had a kind of exploration process by creators instead of this top down, like build memory chips, you might decide, no, that's not actually what we should be doing given our knowledge and resources and the the potentials for profit in the market. So is that kind of what you have in mind when you're when you're talking with what you said before? A little bit. It's a layered problem because someone is always setting the direction and you can have everyone setting their own direction. Uh, but that reduces collaboration. It, it really limits how much can be accomplished. So even in a company, if you have the leaders looking at, are we going to be uh, trying to cut costs and get competitive in these memory chips that are becoming commodities, or are we going to pivot and really focus on this new product line? That's something that that is, you know, it's still a little bit top down. Uh, but in that case, in Intel's case, the company was being run by people who understood semiconductors and who had been instrumental in building the semiconductor business to that point. So they were in a position to, to have learned all the things that made it possible to make that decision and then you know, turn Intel into what it is today. If you're outside of the learning process, if you're just trying to set a strategic goal, like uh, in China to have semiconductor independence, it's much, much harder because you don't have any of that information that would lead you on the path that might actually get you to semiconductor dependence. Megan McArdle has an interesting discussion that's relevant to this on a econ talk episode with Russ Roberts, where they're discussing the pandemic. And the idea of strategic reserves comes up for things like PPE. And she, I won't try to summarize the whole discussion, but one of the points she makes is that the real problem is not, well, we need to have a bunch of physical goods sitting around, which 
I mean, if you really try to make realistic what it would mean to have, you know, a year's worth of PV just sitting around, let alone a year's worth of everything that we might need in every conceivable emergency sitting around, um, that's not really realistic. And that's not the real challenge. The way that she thinks about it is that we need a strategic reserve of people who know how to do these things, that know how to create PPE. So the idea would be that, you know, if you, the, the kind of implication she uses semiconductors as an example is not that you just buy a year's worth of semiconductors that you're not going to use, but it's how do we get some of the talent necessary to build it? Because you can't just in a vacuum develop that on your own. So one of like part of her view is that the United States should be saying to the Taiwanese manufacturers, Hey, like, you know, we'll, we're going to do what England did or the UK did for Hong Kong. Like, come here and share your knowledge and you know china doesn't look like the most friendly place so like you're you're in other words you're trying to import that kind of difficult to acquire knowledge into where you live rather than just trying to grow it out of nothing well there's definitely advantages to getting the knowledge where it, from where it already is rather than starting from square one uh, but all of this you know i I don't, I wouldn't phrase it or frame it inside of a strategic reserve unless it was a very, very general, like, uh, you know, strategic reserve of oil, you can wrap your brain around because oil is used in so many things and it's a very basic commodity. Um, if you were looking for the same thing in technology, it's going to be creativity. It's going to be ingenuity. It's going to be the knowledge to be able to address problems as they come up rather than plan for answers in advance. And that's a lot of what ingenuism is about is to have the framework be not how we traditionally think about things like we need to inventory stuff, but rather to really build a country or society or world where there's plenty of reserves of creativity and ingenuity and knowledge so that whatever problems come up, there's a solution that, that you know, pops out as fast as it possibly could. Yeah, and a kind of contrast to that then, which we've been implicitly talking about, but I think is worth making explicit, is this debate that's happening over industrial policy. And so I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we want to get in this episode, probably not too far, but I did want to at least raise it. So there's a um, piece by Adam Therrier where he notes that, you know, the Biden administration uh, in June, well, the Senate passed a 2300 page bill and it's, I mean, it's called U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. And the basic idea is we're going to have $250 billion that's going to subsidize the semiconductor industry to create so-called regional innovation hubs and other ventures with, um, you know, many more hundreds of pages of new subsidies to come reorganization of the industrial supply chain. So it's basically the idea that instead of just creating a general environment that allows people to seek out to exercise ingenuity and seek out the best solutions for the most you know useful problems to solve um we're going to do a lot more that is similar to what china is doing of well we want a certain kind of outcome and we're going to try to engineer that outcome mostly by 
using money. Right. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really hard to comment on a 2300 page bill that's going to cost a quarter of a trillion dollars because there's so much rolled into it. But it's pretty widely accepted that this is a response to the China threat. And you know, we could go down a rabbit hole with the China threat and, and whether that's the right way to think about it. But it's just bizarre to me that we would be mimicking a country that's mimicking us. I mean, the whole idea behind uh, China's pushes forward in industry and technology is that they identify something that's been working uh, elsewhere, and then they start building it and doing it cheaper or trying to do it better. Like they, they build on what has already been done. And that, if you're if you're trying to catch up, that's a great strategy. I mean, if it's it's less risky, there's less upside because you already know what's possible and you're moving into an area that already has you know the solutions in place. But it's definitely a way to advance a society. But it's not a way to advance a society that's on the frontier. If, if you were uh, living your life in a particular way, and I was then trying to mimic that so that I could have the life that Don has, it would be crazy for you to then start mimicking what I'm doing. Uh, and that, that uh, paradoxical circle just seems to be completely missing from the conversation. Uh, but overall, you know, there are worse things that uh, the government can spend money on than trying to, you know, to fund and, and to support innovation. I just think that these kind of bills go in the complete wrong direction. Well, yeah, because it's, I mean, it's not even the right level of abstraction to talk about supporting innovation, right? Because like what it, it makes a big difference or at least it makes some kind of difference if it's we want to support innovation by creating a policy framework in which people are free to compete or we want to support innovation by putting money into kind of basic research and R&D and then you know let producers take that wherever it leads all the way to we know what should be the frontiers of innovation we know which kind of companies it should go to which kinds of uh, scientific investigations are worthy of it all the way down to, you know, we're going to control prices and distribution like that, that spectrum, it makes a big difference where you fall under it, which gets clouded by these kind of just general intentions of, oh, we want things to, you know, improve and therefore we're throwing money at it. Yeah, it's hard to argue with innovation and competition. You know, the, the title of the, the act is self-evidently good, and then the devil is in the details. Um, but that's part of the idea of ingenuism is that you, you, you look at it through a particular lens, and you would be looking at it, this in the case of connection and exploration, and then the environment that generally would support progress. And there are pieces of this, and there are pieces of, of the uh, past legislation that came out of, of the Biden administration earlier that do support connection. I mean, if you're looking at where uh, you might have a public good that should be government supported, connection is is a public good. It's something that uh, I could definitely get behind. You know, I I don't have a lot of confidence that the money that's being allocated towards 
broadband is going to be spent effectively, but certainly getting people better connected is going to have value. Um, and if, if you want to have the underlying progress that connection can magnify, you need to have something that empowers people to be doing interesting things and then uh, some sort of feedback loop so that they are learning from what they're doing. That's where innovation really comes from. And basic research is not a bad way to go to have people doing interesting things. Uh, I think there's a, a, be a lot more juice in, um, in you know, deregulating parts of the economy and improving schooling. But if you were to put $250 billion towards basic research, you have a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things. And as long as there's a feedback loop so they can learn from them and we can all learn from those activities, then you're actually going to get something out of this. I'm just not convinced that governments are good at taking the feedback and providing that, that, uh, reinforcing what's working and stopping what's not working. Yeah. And I mean, it's an area that I actually want to do more study of because I mean, my basic view of that is that there's always going to be a decision-making process about who and which projects get money. And that the more that that's politicized and monopolized, that can be really dangerous for progress, but it's, that's more of a deduction for my priors than it is having really explored the area. So I, I certainly don't want to take too strong a view on it, but I definitely put at least that in a different category from something like what we're seeing, what usually gets put under industrial policy, which is like, we are going to pick the industries and uh, that are crucial to support and and particularly something like controlling the supply chain, chain dictating how they're organized. And that I think is, I mean, we've had a hundred plus years of experience of that failing and everywhere it's been tried. That's one reason that people like basic research is because, I mean, sometimes people complain it's a long way from anything practical and it is, but that has its benefits because there's not as much political infighting because there's, there's no money involved other than spending it on the basic science. Uh, when you start getting into things like uh, regional innovation hubs, whatever the hell that means, uh, then it, it becomes very political, just like military bases become very political. And of course, we have no evidence that uh, the US government is good at creating innovation. So why they'd be good at creating innovation hubs is beyond me. And so those are the kind of things that I think are a big distraction from what would really be impactful, which would be to help connect people and to support people doing interesting things. Um, basic research is one of those, but more generally, you don't want it just to be a thousand or 10,000 scientists, you'd like to be millions and millions of Americans that are in a position to be doing interesting things and to be learning from them and to be making the world a better place from that. So I want to turn to a different topic. And uh, there's a famous quote from Peter Thiel uh, from a while back, they promised us flying cars, we got 140 characters, that's at least a close paraphrase. And the idea, at least his idea is that 
you know, we've had progress mostly in the world of bits and kind of information and communication, not the world of atoms. So if you think about something like transportation, uh, instead of flying cars, indeed, what we've gotten is um, the Concorde shut down. So our fastest planes are no longer going. And even our conventional planes, we've increased the kind of waiting time to get off them, off them or on them. And so it's that we're really not seeing progress in these other areas. And there's even a fascinating book that I've only started called Where's My Flying Car about this idea. But I want to ask a kind of higher level question to get started, which is, how do you even think about that kind of comparison where it's, um, we're going to take an innovation that and make that kind of the representative of progress and so if we don't have our flying cars that's kind of an indictment of the state of innovation and progress well i think it's a little dangerous because you know i would love to have a flying car don't get me wrong um, but it there is no evidence that suggests that flying cars are what people really want and what would make a huge difference for people uh, there is evidence that 140 characters is what people really want and has made a huge difference for different people around the world. Uh, so I think it's it's dangerous for us to assume that because we don't have flying cars, uh, that there's something wrong. Uh, at the same time, you know the the airways and with um, the way that the kind of litigious society that we live in and the the heavy regulation on all forms of transportation, that would be a great area for us to you know, open up for innovation and competition instead of uh, regional innovation hubs, but actually rationalize uh, the kind of experimentation and exploration that could happen around new forms of transportation. And then we would find out maybe there is no reason to have flying cars, uh, or maybe they are a, uh, they're like a yacht. There's something that, you know, one in a thousand people really want to have and the rest of us were just not, not particularly interested in it. And so I think that when you start making assumptions about what, whether it's, um, you know, regional innovation hubs or flying cars about where the future should be going, then you really put on blinders and you potentially miss on something that could be even more impactful. So flying cars would let us get around a lot more easily. You know, hypothetically you have a flying car, it can go 250 miles an hour and suddenly, you know, traffic is, is less and the distances we can physically travel for a day trip uh, might quadruple. Uh, and that might be really impactful for the world. You know, people might be uh, collaborating more, connecting more, uh, and it's probably going to be less impactful than Zoom. Uh, I think it, if I had a flying car, I'd be using it less to go visit people to to talk about ingenuism and using it more to go to Tahoe to snowboard. Uh, that's just my personal view of it. Uh, and I think that that's where we want to keep our eye on is that uh, it's hard to predict both where the value is going to come from and what it's going to, what it's going to come from and where it's going to come from. What I mean by that is 
you know, the, the big loss from not having had flying cars be a major focus for entrepreneurs for the last 40 years might be that if we had been looking at that, we would already have very light, very high capacity batteries that were developed because people wanted flying cars. And then suddenly those would be changing the world in all sorts of dimensions. So it's really hard to predict, you know, what is going to be the big innovation. And it's sometimes not even what, what we really think it is. If you think about the semiconductor, the, the transistor, you know, it was invented to support the communications network, the, the telephone network. And yeah, it made a big difference in the telephone network. And today, none of us have landlines. Where it really made a difference was in computing and in networking. And that was, it was impossible to predict at the time. Yeah. And there's like, I'm sympathetic to the quote in the sense that um, there, there were and continue to be lots of barriers that I think make something like flying cars artificial. I mean, you touched on this, but make them kind of have artificially slowed them down no pun intended. Uh, and certainly in supersonic flight, I think the barriers have largely been regulatory, at least in recent history. And hopefully they'll be coming down as companies like Boom try to push us back into that. But if you think about even what is the value of speed, part of it is it saves you time to do the things you want to do rather than traveling, right? But what do people want to do? Well, one of the things they wanted to do is they want to share ideas, they want to communicate, they want to connect. And so there's a kind of undervaluing of the progress in the world of bits. But I mean, one of the most exciting things, I mean, it's been a long time since Peter Thiel said that quote. And I mean, in the in in the span since then, you know, the even 10 years ago, we already started seeing the first steps of kind of that process that you're talking about of the microprocessor, you know, the integrated circuit is used for phones and eventually leads to the whole computer revolution where you had kind of the internet and this kind of exchange of um, ideas and communication. But then with things like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, we start to see, okay, this is impacting the world of atoms in a direct way. And of course, I mean, today now, I think we're seeing a much, much, uh, it's getting harder to draw the line. Does this count as the world of bits of the world of atoms? So, I mean, take what I regard as, you know, the greatest innovation in my adult life, the fact that we have these mRNA vaccines that wouldn't have been possible a decade ago. Um, how much of that was made possible by computers, by the internet, is, does that count as the world of bits or the world of atoms? So that, that, that issue has really gone away. And it's like the, you couldn't have foreseen that if you were kind of condemning Twitter, whereas the process that led to Twitter, I think, played a bigger role in mRNA than the process that would have led to flying cars. Yeah, I remember when I first started working in Silicon Valley is uh, a VC said to me, the real difference between information technology and medical technology is that medical technology is analog, that we just sort of stir things up and see what comes out of it. It, it can't be engineered. And, and his point was yet. And I think that uh, that gets exactly to what you're talking about is 
a lot of the world is that we thought was or, or that was analog and we maybe thought was going to stay analog has become partially digitalized. And yeah, to the extent that you can actually design a vaccine instead of looking for compounds that might work, or you can design a delivery system, <clears throat> or you can edit a gene specifically and insert something to, for a particular purpose, you're moving all of the world towards what we think of as, as the digital. It's not so much about atoms, it's about having that sort of precise control, knowing it's a zero or a one and not wondering where it is in between. Uh, so speaking of flying cars, I think it was, I'm losing track of what day we're at. So has it been a day or two days since uh, Richard Branson arguably has the first private uh, flight into space, which I think is very cool, though there's been some pushback from it. It's like, couldn't we be doing better things with our money than having a bunch of billionaires race into space? Uh, I'm curious what you think, but my, honestly, my first reaction is like, it's their money, it's their decision. And if we're going to have advances into space that may or may not turn into something cool, I'm glad somebody else is paying for it, not for me. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm glad it's not going through NASA or something like that. Um, I have more serious thoughts on it, but what was your reaction to the story and to, to other people's reaction to the story? Uh, I was uh, laughing about this last week because I saw that there was a petition uh, that was was growing in signatures uh, to have Jeff Bezos go to space and not come back. Uh, and I am 100% sure that most people who signed that were signing it because it's funny. Uh, uh, but the, it, it does get to the same thing. There is some judgment about, well, whether this is something that's worthwhile. And this is this gets ex exactly what I was talking about with the flying cars versus Twitter idea is, is unquestionably flying cars have been hindered and inhibited. And we don't know because of that, we don't know what could have been possible in 2021. Uh, but that's the point. We don't know. We can't assume it either way. And we don't know if it's the flying cars or if it's something that would have spilled over from that whole effort. And space just takes that on, on steroids. Uh, if you think about the possibilities of what could come out of space, I promise you, what you're, whatever you come up with, no matter how long you sit down and think about it, it's just a fraction of what really is possible that could come out of these efforts to make space accessible. And sure, if it starts with tourism, it starts with tourism, just like, um, you know, every form of entertainment starts with porn. It doesn't mean that's where it's going to end. In fact, it almost guarantees that it's not where it's going to end. And that's going to be a niche and, and unimportant at some point down the road. Now, will it be that we're have space planes and can travel around the planet in 60 minutes? Is it going to mean that uh, we have a web of or satellites in orbit that make broadband internet freely available to the entire planet and any place on the planet? Is it going to mean that you know there are some material advances that happen that completely change um, the you know, weight tensile strength uh, ratio for not just rockets but for planes and for cars and for that and alter all of transportation? We just don't know. 
And this is what, it's great that it's space because, you know, when we think of space, we think of exploration, we think of Star Trek, we're going out there to find stuff. Well, it really is exploration and it really is to find stuff. It's just, we don't know, just like in any exploration, we don't know what it's going to be, but there are so many possibilities that, that could absolutely change how we live and what's possible on earth uh, that I'm extremely excited about it. And like you, I'm very grateful that there are these multiple billionaires that have decided this is where we want to spend our money. This is the final frontier. This is where there's the most potential gain. Uh, and, you know, if you invest 10 billion or a hundred billion, or even, you know, the, the, the Senate just threw out $250 billion for a hodgepodge of stuff. If you invest that and yes, you might get very little value out of it, but you could also, alter the way that you know the, the trajectory of humanity then that's a good deal well in particular if you think about what their goal really is so the goal is not to get into space like that's a solved problem right what they're trying to solve is a new problem which is how do you economically do it like how do you create a system such that everybody can afford to go into space and that is the process of solving that problem that i think is going to be at least early on generating who knows what kind of benefits both for space and for other things. And I mean, it's just so interesting to me that, I mean, I think there's many reasons why it's bad and that, you know, to be a billionaire is like that, that gives you a bad name. And, you know, I've written whole books on that, but I mean, one aspect of it has always been this kind of like monopoly man, uncle Scrooge, kind of figure of people who get money and lock it away in the vault and who don't care about the future. And this is a bunch of people who could retire and never do anything with their lives. And they're investing in something that like, I mean, talk about something that is not likely to pay off in the near term, but is really focused on an excitement, enthusiasm about what we might be able to do long, long in the future. And then we, you know, we want to make steps towards making that happen. Um, it's like the, it's amazing to me that there's, um, well, I guess it's not, it's, it's eloquent to me that there's multiple people right now. Like the question is not, is one of these crazy billionaires going to do it? But it's like, which one of all of these billionaires trying to get us into space in an affordable way? Like who's going to be the most successful of the three? So who are you betting on? I always bet on Bezos. Okay. I mean, I think I think he's the the uh, I, Musk is an interesting guy, and uh, and I, I I admire a lot of what he's doing. But I mean, I think Bezos is the greatest living mind in business of our generation. So I, I would be hard pressed to bet against him. Well, I wouldn't want to bet against any of them. Um, and I I think that what you're pointing at because. You know, we have been going into space for a long time, and the original space projects were very much uh, someone who had no idea about it, deciding this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the moon. And people get very inspired by that. Uh, and it's a little bit misleading in the same way that uh, having commercial space uh, be all about tourism at the beginning is a little bit misleading because it draws your attention away from what really is important, which is that 
SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic have all introduced the feedback loop that is missing from NASA. You know, NASA is told, go to the moon. So you just have to go to the moon. You have to spend whatever money and take whatever uh, chances that you need to, to get to the moon. And if you're trying to make travel to the moon economical, then you're forced to deal with the trade-offs and to deal with the feedback and to learn from what you're doing and to really stress not the the singular goal of getting to the moon but the always moving goal of making it more and more economical uh, and so i think that what's really changed is that You've got these companies that are learning very quickly what works and what doesn't work uh, versus NASA who only could learn what works because every time something went wrong at NASA, they would be trotted in front of Congress and, and you know, be asked to explain why they aren't perfect. Uh, so learning from trying different things and you know I, I hadn't been following what virgin galactic was doing but when i saw their particular approach with the uh, in-air launch and the the more of a space plane design very different than the the starship rockets that tesla's using it made me very excited because the more different things we try the more uh, better chance we have of succeeding at that particular effort, but also there's just more people doing more different interesting things that are going to have all sorts of great spillover feed you know, benefits that wouldn't have shown up if we were stuck in the NASA model. And I don't want to take anything away from NASA because NASA has done amazing things, um, but NASA is constrained. They can't do things that these three companies are able to do. So as we get close to the end of time, there's one more issue I wanted to raise. So in uh, this week's coming newsletter, we're going to be talking about this report on kind of the, the flow of immigration and of highly skilled immigration. And one of the really interesting things that we've seen, um, I forget the time span, but let's call it over the last 10 years, is that uh, highly skilled immigration has increase, increased at a much faster rate than low-skilled immigration. And on the face of it, if you were looking at this through an ingenuism lens, you might be surprised about that, right? Because you might think, wow, it's never been easier in order to do remote work, to be innovative from anywhere on the planet. Um, but I think that it's this really sheds light on the way in which the that's there's a truth that you know the world has never been more connected and that's a really exciting prospect it's still uh connection isn't either or right it's not a one or a zero there's kind of layers of it or degrees of it and there's still a value of being in the room with people who are trying to solve a certain problem or being in a community of people generally trying to solve the same sorts of problems. What's your take on what we can learn about connection by the fact that so many innovators still choose to move to a place like Silicon Valley, where I think the, the statistic they cited was something like a third of the, I forget whether it was the software engineers or the entrepreneurs, but like the high level people in Silicon Valley are immigrants. Yeah, Silicon Valley is definitely a, uh, even as a geography, the Bay Area is definitely a mix of the entire planet. And 
there, I think there are a few lessons. One is that when that people have, are very good at working around constraints. And so whenever there is an onerous regulation or a really challenging uh, engineering problem, there are people who will figure out how to minimize that particular constraint or that particular problem and focus on what can be accomplished with that virtually out of the way. Um, it's never as good as actually solving the problem or, or eliminating the constraint, but it's surprising at how close people can get to that. And so uh, when there are, for example, immigration restrictions, uh, you get a different mix of people coming to Silicon Valley. And it's those who get the most benefit from leaving wherever it is they are, the culture they're in and coming to the Valley versus uh, necessarily the, the people who uh, are of the highest value. It's the, the largest incremental value. And what I think is really, and then the, the last thing is, I think it's really important to remember when you look through the ingenuous lens is that connection is something that magnifies the impact of ingenuity. It's not the source of progress itself. If nobody's doing anything interesting and nobody's coming up with new insights, it doesn't matter if the world is completely connected, you're not gonna get any progress. And so what has happened with, uh, in the last 20 years is as the world has gotten more connected, it's become more and more obvious where there are cultures and rules and constraints, restrictions that hold back people, hold people back from using their ingenuity and from really making the world better. And it's those people now who it, it just screamingly obvious that they could accomplish more, more for themselves, more for their families, more for the society, more for the world. They could accomplish more by getting into a culture that will support them better. And so while being able to be connected in, uh, you know, by, via the internet or via video conferencing, or even via an you know, occasional visit, if someone's in an environment where there aren't a lot of people to collaborate with and there isn't a support for experimentation and exploration and there, there isn't a, a uh, healthy relationship to failure and what that really means, then they are going to be drawn to an environment that will support them. And right now there's nothing like Silicon Valley to support those types of entrepreneurs. Yeah, and there's so much of there's so much benefit, I think, just to the 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 kind of unexpected connections that happen when you're dealing with kind of physical interaction. I mean, I just I think I've told you this story before, but I was working on a book one time and I had a colleague just wander by my office and he asked me what I was working on. I told him and he's like, oh, I know of this really amazing anecdote that was, you know, perfect for the book. I would have, it would have never come up in any research I was doing. You know, that's a very small, almost trivial example, but I think that kind of thing happens all the time. It's one reason why for better, or for worse, these ideas of open offices where, oh, we'll get our, you know, employees to connect 
all the time becomes so popular because there is a recognition that even like this accidental connection, if it's happening, is able to give life to a lot of useful and new ideas. Yeah, that serendipity is hard to to overrate. Uh, if you think about sort of the the history of connection, that people got connected to other people's knowledge originally through printed books. And we developed this enormous system of libraries in the United States and in all of the developed world, uh, where we would have the repository of the knowledge and people could go and find the knowledge that they were looking for. But the, and, and you could even browse, but in a physical library, browsing is uh, it's, it's not very effective. And the internet gave us an ability to discover information more serendipitously. You would you would follow links between web pages, and we've all had this where you start off looking for something, and then you end up down a rabbit hole where you spend you know ninety minutes learning about a topic that you had no idea you were interested in or might want to even invest that kind of time in. Uh, but that's all. Um, that's all in more of a, a knowledge sense. If we're talking about ideas and insights and combining them and collaborating, there is not yet a online alternative to the physical proximity of being in a research lab or being at a company or being in a, in a geography like Silicon Valley. It's certainly possible that it'll develop uh, if you if you look at things like Clubhouse, where it seems like we're going back in time, but we're really not because what we're allowing is for that sort of spontaneous and serendipitous connection and combination of ideas just without people having to be physically located in the same geography, we're sort of heading in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, Don, you're a lot younger. Did you read Ender's Game? Yeah, as an adult, though. Uh, so, so most boys or men at some point read Ender's Game, and they're of course completely enamored by the Battle School. But I remember when I read it, also being uh, enamored with the idea that uh, Ender's brother and sister—I think it was Peter and Violet—were able to impact policy through their writing under pseudonyms. That there was a whole system for ideas to to combine and to, to build on each other and to be essentially voted up or voted down. And, you know, we don't have battle school, but, you know, Twitter was maybe the first effort at this. And we're seeing more and more where we really are starting to give, to create environments where people can virtually, uh, create this spontaneous connection and the, the serendipitous combination of ideas. And if we ever crack, if when I should say technology cracks that code, it'll be huge for the planet because right now, yes, you have to come to Silicon Valley. You have to come to um, a major research university in order to get that kind of connection and collaboration, but it's not, it's not a given that that'll always be the case. Uh, as human beings, I think we'll always get something out of being physically present with each other. Um, at least in our lifetime, our children's lifetime, there's just something biological. But from an intellectual standpoint, there's still a long way to go to really mimic 
the absolute epitome of connection that's possible when, when two people are physically together. And maybe that's not the epitome. Maybe it's actually when people's brains are, you know, wired together and they're actually sharing thoughts. There is no limit to connection. But right now we're, you know, I don't know, maybe in the third inning, even though it feels like we've made so much progress in the last 20 years and we have, uh, there's no reason to think we won't make even more in the next 20 years. That's it for this week. Be sure to go to ingenuism.com, sign up for our sub stack, and we will talk to you guys next week.